Okay, I want you to just take a breath. Thank you, Jesus, for air that we breathe. Thank you that that's yours. Thank you that in our frailty and utter need for you, there you are. And so, Lord, we pray for your breath, the breath of the Holy Spirit that carried the word from the mouth of the Father to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move freely here. We bind in the name of Jesus any agent of the evil one seeking to distract or destroy or confuse or divide or cause harm. We bind you and send you where Jesus will deal with you. We ask that you come, Holy Spirit, and move among us. Thank you, Jesus. pray all this in your name. Amen. Be seated, please. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. And uh, I, think, I think one of the things I just want to say before we get started, this whole series, um, is a rare moment of my obedience to the Lord, okay? And I'm going to say to you today is a rare moment of my obedience um, that I just acted on what I heard him saying, okay? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man boast in his strength, nor the rich man boast in his riches, but he who boasts boasts in this, that he knows the Lord. So this is just coming out of some time between me and Jesus, some stuff that he's been working in me since January. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. It is an unveiling or a revealing. That's what the word apocalypse or revelation means. It's just an unveiling of who Jesus is. The book of Revelation is not a code to be unlocked with what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia or current events. It's not a code to be unlocked. It is an invitation to see Jesus in our midst in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because the book of Revelation is written to churches experiencing a difficult circumstance. So Jesus offers a revelation, an unveiling of himself to his best friend John, and his best friend John writes it down and sends that revelation, not revelations, look smart in front of smart people, not revelations, the book of Revelation, he sends this, this revelation, this unveiling, this revealing to these seven churches. And the book begins with kind of this vision of Jesus and then seven letters from Jesus to seven churches in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And the first letter is a letter to a church in a city called Ephesus. And this is what the letter from Jesus says. He says, I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not. You found them to be false. I I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and I know you have not grown weary. That's high praise, by the way. Jesus doesn't have that high of praise for any of the other churches in the other six. But out of that high praise, he actually has a a harsh critique. But, verse 4, uh-oh. But, 
I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Change your mind. Change your direction. Do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. If you've ever taken a course in management, they tell you to offer critique as an Oreo. Good thing, bad thing, good thing. That's what Jesus is doing. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans are like a heretical false teaching group in this time of history, which I also hate. So Jesus evidently has hatred in him as well as love. Isn't that interesting? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus has remarkably high praise for this church, and by all accounts, he should The church in Ephesus is remarkably faithful and remarkably fruitful. I mean, look at what Jesus says. You're doing good work. You know the difference between good and bad teaching, and you reject the bad. I I see that in the suffering that causes you, you're enduring well. The church in Ephesus, according to tradition and to history, was planted by the Apostle Paul, pastored by Timothy, who Paul directly mentored, and attended by Mary, the mother of Jesus, and by John, the beloved disciple, the author of the book of Revelation. Now, there's some Sundays I get up and I, I, well, really every Sunday, I feel the weight of opening the scriptures and explaining them to you. But I'm really thankful Jesus' mom is not listening. (laughs) There's some smart people in this church, some brilliant theological minds super glad Jesus's best friend, who's also the author of four New Testament, five New Testament books, isn't, isn't listening. <laughs> now, Jesus has a correction for this church, doesn't he? He says, I see your works. I see your faithful endurance. I see all of the good things. He says, but you don't love me like you did at first. You've abandoned your first love. And he offers them an invitation. He says, repent. Go back to the things that you did at first But then do you notice that there's an ultimatum almost? Repent, and if you don't, I will remove your lampstand from among the places. In Revelation 1, John sees seven lampstands, and they're the seven churches. What's super interesting historically, we'll come back to this in a minute, but what's super interesting historically is that within a few decades of the writing of the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus disappears from the face of history. Jesus keeps his word, and removes the lampstand. So in the midst of all of the praise that Jesus has for this church, he offers an invitation. He says, you have abandoned your first love. You don't have the love that you had at first. Jesus says to a thriving church, to faithful and fruitful people that are making an impact for his kingdom, he says... You have lost your first love. In other words, Jesus says to them and he says to us that it is possible to lose our first love. It is possible to lose our first love. I came to faith at a young age. In fact, I cannot remember a time in my life 
when I didn't know the very core of what the gospel meant. What is the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose again, and all of that pays for these sins that separate me from God, and by believing in him, I can live in heaven with him forever. There was never a time in my life, I can't think of a time that I didn't know that. I grew up, though, knowing about Jesus, not knowing Jesus. Do you see the difference? I'm married to my wife. It's more, it is important to her that I know about her. It's important that I know about the kind of clothes that she likes to wear and the kind of foods that she likes to eat and the kind of things that she likes to do so that when I want to buy her a gift or let her know that I love her, I can get that right. But more than knowing about her, my wife wants me to know her, right? There's a difference. Love is not just a possession of some facts about a person, but it's a deep relating and a deep knowing. It's a deep relating and a deep knowing Now, that all changed for me when I was in eighth grade. I grew up in this area, so I ended up in a youth group in our area. And, and in that, my eighth grade year, the knowing about became knowing. It became that personal relating to Jesus. And I found high school to be a struggle. Now, I'm learning that my experience, like all of our experiences, is not authoritative, right? So how I remember high school and how some of my classmates remember me in high school are very, very different. Um, they're probably right and I'm probably right at somewhere in the middle, but I remember in high school feeling a lot of rejection, a lot of not fitting in, a lot of isolation, um, a lot of not belonging. And that youth group experience was like a counterbalance where I began to feel that belonging, I began to feel less isolated, I began to feel seen and not rejected, but it, but it also layered uh, some shame because I was struggling with, well, let's just say I was struggling with the kinds of things a boy in 16 or 17 full of hormones would struggle with, with unfettered access to the internet. And I didn't really feel like I could talk about that because we're learning about this Jesus who loves us, but we're also learning about this Jesus who has this pretty high ethical standard of holiness. And so there I am kind of caught between this, Jesus, this God who loves me and this God who is holy and struggling to feel like I could be honest about where I was while also still feeling some sense of belonging. But, but Matt Chandler, he's a pastor. Like, you can be 99% known. But even if you're 99% known, that 1% will eat at you. And it ate at me that I was 99% known, right? And so somewhere along my way, um, I encountered two books that just radically changed the course of my life. And the first one was a book by Donald Miller named Blue Like Jazz. Now, let me just start right here. They've made a movie of this book, and it is terrible. So do not, do not watch the movie if you'd like to read the book. And if you knew me in high school, y'all, this, this book was all I could talk about. Harry and Kathy Britt knew me then, and I mentioned that, and they laughed. It's all I could talk about. And, and here's why. I think I've even mentioned this a few months ago. I couldn't stop thinking about this passage from the book. Let me just read it to you. I think the difference in my life came when I realized, after reading the Gospels, that Jesus didn't just love me out of principle. He didn't just love me because it was the right thing to do. Rather, there was something inside me that caused him to love me. I think I realized that if I walked up to his campfire, 
he would ask me to sit down and he would ask me my story and he would take time to listen to my ramblings or my anger until I could calm down and then he would look me directly in the eye and he would speak to me and he would tell me the truth and I would sense in his voice and in the lines on his face that he liked me. As I was struggling with shame and rejection and isolation, no one told me, or if they did, I wasn't listening, that God didn't just love me in order to fulfill a rule in heavenly places, the deep magic from before time in Narnia language. He, he loved me because there was something in him that wanted to do that. There was something about me that he found lovable. At around the same time, I picked up another book, and this one was called The Ragamuffin Gospel, The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning, who was a Vietnam, uh, excuse me, a Korean War veteran serving with the Marine Corps, who left the military, became a Roman Catholic priest, left the priesthood to marry a woman who later divorced him because of his alcoholism. This guy had lived a life. And in this book, Ragamuffin Gospel, he says two things. By the way, here's a picture of me and Brendan Manning in 2007. He spoke at a youth conference I got to go to, and I took a picture. That shirt was made for me by um, an African church that I visited in high school. Uh, and you can't really see in this picture, but boy, do I have a lot of hair in that picture. I'll tell you. <laughs> Kyle, you do not know. His forehead is so unwrinkled from stress. Um, Brandon Manning died six years after this uh, picture was taken. Um, and in his book, there were two things that stuck out to me. By the way, someone has wisely noted that books don't change people's lives. Sentences do. Paragraphs do. And there are two sentences from the Ragamuffin Gospel that have stuck with me that absolutely radically changed my life. He says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ. And I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. He says, Jesus, God has a single, relentless stance toward us. He loves us. He is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. And y'all, in my later teen years, as I was struggling the way I was struggling, what rocked my world was the idea that God loved me. And y'all, can I just say, in that season of my life, I loved Jesus, period, full stop, no qualifications. I loved Jesus imperfectly, messily, like we all do, but I just loved Jesus. And so I wore the t-shirts and I listened to the music and I went to the conferences and I, 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 I read the books, but y'all, I loved Jesus. Jesus, I had found my first love. And then, along the way, some things happened. And the first thing that happened was this. I went to Bible college. I went to Bible college, and um, you'll notice these books, I'm quoting books, I'm not quoting scripture, because Scripture wasn't playing a big role in my life in that season. I went to a church that taught the Bible, uh, but I didn't really learn how to read and study and enjoy the Bible. Let's be fair, I was 16, so if I was taught it, I wasn't listening. But, um, so I, I went to Bible college, and I wept through Old Testament survey. 
I had to read my fall semester college the entire Old Testament, and I wept. Not from pain, from delight. Because nobody had told me this story that I was a part of. I got a New Testament survey, had to read the New Testament twice in a semester. I wept because nobody had ever told me this story that I got to be a part of. I went to Systematic Theology 1, and I wept. I went to Systematic Theology 2, and I wept at the beauty and the depth and the grandeur and the bigness of who this God is, this God that had called me by name. I also got very angry. I got very angry because how dare somebody not tell me this? You mean this is mine? You mean these stories, these truths have been lived for and and died for by thousands and you kind of left it at God loves you, be nice? If you want to know why do I teach the Bible the way I teach the Bible, the people I'm training to preach, do you know why I train you to preach the way I'm training you to preach? Is we don't hide these things from our children. We don't hide this under a bushel. But along the way, in the midst of the weeping and the anger, something happened, something that Brennan Manning calls um, this studying got Jesus trapped in the ivory tower of exegesis. Exegesis is a word you don't know, but you do know if you start studying academically. And Jesus got trapped in the ivory tower of exegesis. See, along the way, I went to Bible college, and then along the way, I did something else. Um, I entered ministry. (laughs) God called me into ministry in 2004, and I said yes. It wasn't even a question. I went to Bible college. It wasn't even a question. My high school guidance counselor was dismayed and terrified because the only college I applied to was the Moody Bible Institute, which at the time was very hard to get into. And he couldn't figure out. He kept saying to me, Kyle, why don't you just like apply to Kent State Trumbull as a backup? And I said to him, I do not need a backup. And I got accepted. I got my first part-time ministry job in 2011. I said yes, I didn't even think about it. When Steph and I started praying about moving to Ohio in 2013 to come here. I did have to think about it for a minute, I have to admit. (laughs) But along the way, I've just kept saying yes. And I think people think, oh, Kyle, because he's a professional Christian, he has all of this time to to do these things. And it's true, I I do. Y'all, I cannot believe, I cannot believe I get to do what I do and make a living doing it. Now, to be fair, there are some things that you do not pay me to do. You do not pay me to do this. You pay me to do the paperwork, okay? You pay me to do the boring stuff. I would do this stuff for free. You know, I, I cannot believe I get to do what I, I get to do. But at the same time, along the way, being around the God stuff all of the time has started in some seasons to feel like I've gone to work for my dad. And sometimes I just want my dad to be my dad. I don't want him to also be my boss. And sometimes I kind of devolve into interacting with God as a disgruntled employee with his supervisor, right? And the activity for God can eclipse being with God. You see, I found my first love, and then along the way, the hard knocks of life came along. 
Some of that was ministry-related. We started this on a Sunday nights. None of you were in the room. Lindsay was off and on. And I would stand in this front row and pray to God that by the time I stood up to preach, there would be more people than when I last turned my back, and there were not. Week after wintry, heart-wrenching, laborious, heartbreaking week. See, I thought I'd been schooled at the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Just let me at them. Wait till they hear me preach. And then infertility. And then miscarriages. And through the hard knocks of life and becoming a professional Christian and through academic study, not one, not two, but three degrees later, something's happened, I've realized, and it's that my love has grown cold. And the words of Revelation 2 are very, very personal. I have this against you, Jesus says, you do not love me as you did at first. What does Jesus say before that? He says, I see your works. It's like the Lord is saying, you know, Kyle, I see that you went to Bible college three different times because you love me. It's like the Lord is saying, Kyle, I see the things you've done for the kingdom. I see those things. It's like the Lord is saying, I see how you have patiently endured through seasons of suffering. But in the midst of this, Jesus comes to me and he says, but I still have this against you. You do not love me as you did at first. And so the other day I'm in a prayer meeting and we're praying for like the big things that Kyle loves to pray for. Spiritual breakthrough, revival, new believers coming to faith. And the Lord brings to mind 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. So I, I turn to 1 Corinthians 13 in my Bible. And it says... If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I don't love others, if I don't have love, I I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I understand all of God's secret plans and possess all knowledge, if I have such faith, faith that I could move mountains, but I don't have love, I'd be nothing. If I even gave everything I have to the poor, even sacrificed my body, some translations say even gave my body to be burned, like put up on an altar, even if I do all those things and I don't have love, I have gained nothing. And it's like the Lord grabbed me by the shoulder and put his arm around me and said, Kyle, you can have all the gifts of the Spirit. You can have a profoundly fruitful ministry. You can lead, you can lead your church to accomplish all the goals it has and the ones that you've not even thought of yet. You can start new churches and micro churches. You can have an amazing and high-performing staff. You can be multiplying across your region. You can have an increasingly large national platform. You can write the book. But if you do not have love, if you do not have me, what's it worth? The realization I've been coming to since January is that I've not lost my first love per se, but it has gotten tangled up in some other things. In the doing for God, and instead of being with God, I've kind of lost my first love like I was mid-sentence and couldn't remember the word that came next. 
or, or like I was singing a song and just couldn't remember the tune. I'd lost the plot of the story. And so Jesus says, you have abandoned the love you have at first, but that's not all Jesus says, is it? He goes on to say, remember therefore from when you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. I looked up Revelation 2.5 and all the English translations. You know what it says? It says, return to me. It says, return to me. Jesus says, return to your first love. See right there, in all the pages, in the pages of Scripture, right there. Authoritative for all times and places. Inerrant, inspired, infallible. Literally, it says that there's an assumption that I will lose my first love. The Bible just assumes, Jesus just assumes that along the way, our love for him will rise and fall like the tides. He assumes it doesn't catch him by surprise. But also there in Scripture, right there, in your Bible and mine, inerrant, authoritative, over all of God's people, through all times and places, is an enduring invitation. Is an enduring invitation. You can always come back. There's an enduring invitation. You can always come back. My first love has faltered and failed. That passion, that immediate obedience has gotten tangled up in some things. And as we begin this Lent journey, these 40 days to Easter, I want to go on a journey with you. I want to go on a journey where we return to our first love. So my question this morning, how's your first love? How's your first love? Has, has suffering and sadness and sickness, has disappointment and despair caused your love to grow cold? Has the undertow of our cultural moment the outrage, the anxiety, the politics, the fighting, has it caused your love to grow cold? Has the weight of the pain of your body or the pain of your mind or the pain of your soul, the anxiety, the depression, has it, has it caused your love to go cold? Has the wounds that, have the wounds that you received from church people and churches caused your love to grow cold? Has the activity, has the doing for God become something that you love more than being with God? Has, has walking with Jesus been a little bit of a bad deal? Has it felt like a little bit of a bait and switch? Come to me and I will give you rest for your souls, but wait, you must first endure through many trials. Has it 
been more disappointing, more painful, more bitter, more frustrating, more, vic- more defeating, more confusing. I want to offer you an invitation today. Not a challenge, an invitation. And the invitation is simply, return to your first love. You see, when Jesus died, when he called your name, he saw not only the sin of your past and your present, but he saw the sin of your future. He saw the sin of your future. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. He's not like surprised. When our first love grows cold, Jesus doesn't go, and nor does he say, I knew it. He simply says, return to me. He simply says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you've done at first. I want to look at how we return, but let me just say one thing first. Because as I'm listening, my prayer has been and is that some of you are coming to the realization that there never was a first love. Some of you are like exploring faith. And I'm really glad you're here. And if you're exploring faith, it's great to have intellectual questions and things you need to figure out. The one thing you don't need to figure out is how to kind of get your life cleaned up. And the one thing you need to know about this journey, Donald Miller puts it really well in Blue Light Jazz. He says that believing in God is as much like falling in love as it is making a decision. Believing in God is as much as like falling in love as it is making a decision. Love is both something that happens to you and something that you decide upon. Man, I am praying that through this series, you fall in love and in the process decide to trust Jesus. I'm praying, as is our team, that you would receive the love of Jesus for the first time. You can't return to something you never had. My other thing that I've been praying into is um, that some of you have been practicing, practicing Christianity for decades, some of you, apart from a first love. And so your Christian life has been like the Olympics but they forgot to light the torch at the beginning. There was no igniting of passion and first love. It has just been sweat and duty and exertion and competition to appease a God that you are so sure is mad at you. To appease a God that you're so sure doesn't like you. And my prayer is that those of you that have been practicing what Paul calls the form of religion with none of its power would have a fire lit inside of you, a fire of first love, that you would receive the first love. And my prayer for all of us, whether we've been following Jesus for eight seconds or 18,000 years, we would find our first love renewed and restored and refreshed and recalibrated, and every other reword that I can think of, that there would be a returning. And how do we return? Jesus tells us. He just says, go back to the things that you did at first. So y'all, I have been jamming to 90s and 2000s worship music, and it is corny and eye-rolly and so good for me. 
I've been reading the books. I've been reading Ragamuffin Gospel. I've been reading Blue Light Jazz. I've been reading the Sacred Romance. I've been reading books that kindle my love for Jesus. I've carved out in Lent. I've said no to some things so that there's some more room to just be loved by Jesus and to love on Jesus. I'm writing thank you notes. I'm writing thank you notes to people that played a significant role in my journey in in that time of my life. Because all I'm doing is exactly what Jesus said. Repent and do the works you did at first. I loved Sonic Flood when I was 15. I loved David Crowder when I was 15. Some of you didn't come to Jesus until recently, and that's probably good because the music wasn't as great then. But <laughs> and, and so here's what I'm asking us to do as a church, y'all, is we're going to go full court press on this, full court press, all out, all of our resources, social media, fill in with first love. I've asked five people, some of them in our church, to talk about their journey of first love and how to return to it. Because my journey is mine, and some of you may not resonate with this, and that's okay. So I have men and women. I have multiple generations. I've asked each of those preachers to pick a song or two that stirred their first love and will sing it the Sunday they preach. I've asked them to pick a book that stirred their first love. And there's a reading list in your emails and on the bulletin. Pick up a book and just read it. We've created a, a Spotify playlist of all of the songs that stir our first love. And at a date yet to be determined, we're going to do a worship night just a first love worship night, all of those songs together, right? The other thing I'm inviting you to do is some of you might renew your love for Jesus in such kind of a a stark way that you may feel the Lord leading you to reaffirm your baptism. So we'll do that on Easter. Some of you might receive the love of Jesus for the first time in this series. Please, Lord, (laughs) please. And if so, I'd love for you to go and be baptized on Easter. He has one relentless stance toward us. He loves us. And he loves us knowing that there would be rises and falls in our affections for him. And the good news is that he is the only God man has ever heard of that loves sinners. So Steph's going to lead us in response to my prayer this morning is that we would go on a journey of of first love together. Amen? Amen. Here at Regen, we do response time because we don't want to be just hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word who are transformed by it. And so as Kyle just said, I I was going to ask Amanda to throw that slide back up um, because that is such good news that God loves us even though we are sinners. And so if you are feeling kind of that, oh man, or that overwhelmed feeling, the good news is that the the invitation of the Father is to come and that there is forgiveness and there is grace with Jesus. And so I want to, um, we're just going to take our time that we do. I want you just to reflect kind of on what Kyle said and just to evaluate where is my first love? Am I living into that? Is there a place that I need to kind of press in more there or repent? Maybe you're feeling like, I'm, I'm like in love with Jesus. We're doing this thing. Then celebrate that. Rejoice in that. Be, be grateful for that. And if you're someone who's saying, I'm not sure, but I think, yes, I want this to be my first love, um, Kyle and I would love to talk with you, pray with you. In fact, um, Kyle and I and Art and Pam will be in the back. If you need prayer, 
because something has come up during this that you need prayer for. Maybe you just feel stuck and you think, I don't know where to go. We would love to pray with you. We would love to come alongside you in that. Um, so let's just take a moment and, and just invite the Father to, to speak to us this morning. Father, we confess um, that our love does ebb and flow, that in our frailty and our humanity and in our sin, uh, that we are not consistent in our love for you, Jesus, but we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you receive us every time that we come to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you don't um, just love us, but that you like us. We thank you, Father, that you love sinners like us. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to walk with us, that you speak to us, that we are called your very own children, your sons and your daughters. And so, Jesus, I just pray that we would live in the light of that love. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would kindle a fire in us that um, doesn't just burn um, for our own sake, but for the sake of the lost around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To all who are thirsty, to all who have failed, to all who have sinned, to all who are broken, to all who are hungry, to all who are worn out, to all who are wounded, To all who are arrogant, to all who are humble, to all who are brokenhearted, to all who are overjoyed, Jesus says, come to the table. He says, come to the table precisely as you are. He says, let me love you precisely as you are. That's why Jesus gives us this table. And as you walked in to this church this morning, you walked into a spiritual family that, that believes this isn't just a recalling of a fact, but an encounter with the real presence of Jesus. Even as you eat of the cup and take of that, even as you engage in this small thing, it is Jesus extending to you his love and his mercy and his grace. At Regen, that's why we invite everybody to this table because his love and his mercy and his grace is for all of us. I just need two people who feel like God is stirring in them this morning to lead communion, just two of you.
way that we'll do this is you'll kind of move toward the center and come down and then up the sides. Anybody with a pulse is welcome to this table. Art and Pam will be over there and Steph and I will be back there. And we would love to pray with you. Let me just pray for us. Father, 